Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Chris Kaiser, Killian Englert, and Sean Campbell. With pretty decor, dinner plans with friends and family, shopping deals all over the place, the holiday season feels like it's in full swing. And when I came across an article that suggested an AI sales assistant can potentially push you into spending more, you know, I thought sales was a relationship building business. But I mean, I do see the benefits of having extra help. I love help. So I'm wondering, what are some pros and cons of outsourcing sales to an AI machine? And I'm curious, what would cause you to spend more? Hey, this is Sean. Interesting topic. I guess I, I could start with a pro before delving into the con. I'll give a, uh, a real world example that happened uh, recently, actually. It didn't involve AI, but it would have been a nice use of AI. AI had I actually not had this connection. So I was on my Instagram feed and a certain sneaker company had posted, it was basically an ad, some targeted advertising that they do. But in the layout, there was a pair of sneakers that caught my attention. And the challenge is I, they didn't list in the post the name of the sneakers, the SKU number, nothing really much other than me seeing the picture and saying, oh, those sneakers are cool. So I went on to the site, couldn't find them. Didn't know their like style or anything like that. I tried to base it off of the color that I saw. Nonetheless, I was spending a little more time on the site than I anticipated. So guess what? I left. So closed the site, went on with my day. I had come back to it only because I have a friend who, go figure, is sponsored by this sneaker company. She's a an athlete. And so I just happened to ask her. I said, hey, can you find some more information about this sneaker? She knew exactly the name, the nickname of it, all that stuff right off the bat right away. And so I was able to look it up and was able to close the gap on my interest in this pair of sneakers. So when I saw the article, I go, I can see where companies are headed with the AI experience while on a certain site. I did think it was a little, uh, maybe too personal for a robot to start inquiring if someone's like a model. And I don't know you know, how human they want to start making these bots interact with folks, but uh, that was my take on it so far. Yeah, this is Chris. Think that it's a matter of how developed these AIs actually are. I mean, if you think about it really in AI, if you really break it down, it's just a list of questions and answers that it can, it's taking a cue or cues plural and figuring out what the next response is supposed to be. It reminds me of like trying to use an automated voice messaging system when you call up a company and try and get help from them. It's a little bit impersonal. There's often going to be corner cases and situations that aren't going to work out properly. And I can still kind of tell if I'm talking with something automated when I'm online, you can kind of tell that it's not quite having a conversation with you. It's, it's giving you predetermined responses. I think there's certain scenarios in which it could be helpful if, for instance, offering you like an upsize or an extra Coke or something like that. And that kind of conversation is probably doable. When it comes to selling something that involves a little bit more either monetary investment or emotional investment like that, I still think uh, a human being is going to do a far better job. I haven't interacted with this particular AI they mentioned before, that Millie or, or, or whatever it's called. But I feel like there's so many things this AI would have to be able to pick up on and respond to that I don't think we're there yet for it to be as effective as a person, but there may be certain simpler processes or simpler kinds of conversations it might be able to effectively have. As somebody who works in sales, I guess part of me gets a little bit nervous hearing that they're trying to develop something that might potentially replace somebody in that industry, but it's going to be a while, I think, before they're able 
completely replace a person. Hi, this is Kellyanne. I think it can go one of two ways, and I think um, typically for the the basic introductory conversations, certainly it's pretty standard to come up with those question and answer pairs for a lot of the common cases. But if you think about some of the targeted advertising that you might see, like in Sean's case, imagine the amount of data that we have um, out there about ourselves, be it on social media or wherever it happens to be, how much they could mine that. And, you know, I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat real quick, but you can mine that to get extremely personal if you want. Everybody loves flattery. And the one thing in the, you know, the Millie thing is, oh, you, you know, you look like a model in those classes. Well, think about if they were mining your social media feed. There were definitely people more susceptible to flattery than others. That's an easy way to target them with extra flattery if they were to go that route, I think, at some point. And then also, if you analyze some of the other user behavior, it might be signs of, of a buying pattern. If you're going to a brand's website, like Sean was, looking around, spending time on it, spending time on specific pages, you could mine that for potential information to target him with the type of sneakers that he's interested in, in his example. So it's it's easy to kind of use AI to really learn behaviors about people to fi- find out where they are, you know, in their mental thought process um, and the buying pattern, you know, if they're ready to pull the trigger on something, but they're just maybe comparing uh, products or prices or something like that, and then exploit that for, again, to make that sale. But as Chris mentioned, there's always going to be, especially for more complex sales processes, you're always going to need that human element to kind of walk people through as opposed to a more commodity type of sales motion where it's pretty laid out already. So Chris, I wouldn't worry about your job just yet. Thanks, guys. If you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show. It helps them discover great shows like ours. And it really seems like we're on the edge of lots of new and upcoming innovations. And within the next few years, we're going to see a lot of breakthroughs. And right now, I my sense is we're tweaking and iterating, such as the AI sales assistant. And I'm glad Google's acknowledging that their current image data set there they've identified isn't a culturally inclusive one. But I thought, okay, let's say they've managed to identify anything and everything with at least an 80% accuracy rate. What concerns me is what it does to training a real human eye so that they see more than just wedding dresses, people, or trees. And I remember reading about a college professor that makes her students stare at a painting, a classic painting that you'd see at a museum for three hours. And every few minutes, the students would have to identify what they see on the painting so that they're training their eyes to see. And so it sort of reminds me also of people who want more exercise instead of parking their car, which is a form of technology near the closest entrance, we're advised to park as far away as possible. And I'm wondering what kind of eye exercises we'd have to do in the future to train our eyes to see and understand what we're seeing. Because now I think more than ever before, context is really important. And I'm wondering how you guys are reconciling how you adapt new technology with your lives. When do you recognize that technology is helpful? And then where do you draw the line? My answer to that would be kind of drawing from the previous kind of prompt question that we had is technology is great for automating a lot of very routine processes. So things that, you know, don't really require a lot of mental effort, stuff that you could potentially script or something like that. I think that's where it would really come in handy. Just like in the sales process, you know, a lot of the common question and answers, like, you know, hey, what colors do these sneakers come in? What sizes do they come in? Can I get them two-day shipping or whatever it happens to be? Those are all pretty routine things that you can automate uh, with technology. But some of the other aspects, the more personal aspects, 
products is it would be much harder for technology to kind of step in there and uh, and address some of that. I mean, I'm cool with like technology revolutionizing how I place my order at the drive through at like my favorite fast food joint. That's fine. But let's not start creating this really creepy profile of my my internet habits, the apps I have on my phone, and then suggest that I need something or start bombarding me with information that, you know, they, they think or, you know, the tech because of how it's designed using advertising and such thinks I may want to spend my next dollar. That's sort of a challenge for me. And I keep seeing it indirectly from afar, but just having the mindset of just a technologist and definitely from a security side of things, people are starting to catch on. Like, wait a minute. Like, why is it able to know that? I'll, I'll give you an example of the latest Facebook post I keep seeing. It'll say something along the lines of this. Wait a minute. Really weird. I totally was sitting next to somebody at a restaurant, don't know them personally, and now I see them as a suggested friend request on Facebook. <laughs> In that respect, what's going on there? Is there geolocation data that's now sort of being analyzed and saying, hey, if they're in the proximity of this person, but wait, they're not friends. They must know each other. They were, they were so close together. They probably don't even know that they're not Facebook friends yet. So let, let me just go ahead and say, hey, I bet you want to add this person. We're not ready for that. I'm so impressed that that person recognized that they're acquaintances or strangers, and but they recognize recognize them on Facebook because normally I think people's pictures look different than they do in person. <laughs> Very observant. Definitely had a similar situation. People being suggested to be my friend the day after I've been in a party. This one was legitimate. I did actually run into them, but it is weird that I, unprompted, that's kind of the assumption that, that Facebook made is that, oh, you clearly just met this person because you were near, near them. I've had another situation like that that kind of creeped me out. I remember I was going on the way to a, a concert maybe a few months ago. And I remember passing by this building out in Brooklyn that has a ton of really cool graffiti on it and, and saying out loud, wow, that's a really interesting building. I wonder what that is. And then the next day, opening my Instagram feed to an ad from that exact company using that exact same imagery. And I was like, that is very strange. Like how, how is that possible? So I, I don't know if, it, I'm not sure it was an, an audio you know, recognition that it heard me. I don't know if it was just the fact that I was geolocated right next to it, but the fact that the IRL world and, and online world are kind of colliding in this strange, strange way with the interest of, of marketing marketing to me and, and, and assuming my interests and I guess the in, interest of making money off of me. I've seen definitely an uptick in, in those weird, not quite coincidences, but definitely feel like them kind of moments in, in the last year or two. I think we're in a spot now where it's it's starting to become more and more invasive, but at the same time, I feel like I'm less surprised as I, than I used to be. You know, back in the day, this used to be like amazing to me. And now it's just like, oh yeah, I guess it's the world that we're living in because we're all adjusting to how normal this, this might or might not be. I think we're seeing Facebook take most of the heat right now, but I think the reality is the default setting for many companies is to collect everything from their users. And do you ever wonder when the data that they collect is no longer relevant because the people who that are that are collecting the data don't know how to synthesize the data? Because I remember after September 11th, we increased our surveillance, but all the extra data didn't seem helpful at all. But there's also power in the data, right? So we're seeing 
seeing the advertise in Instagram where I also hear from a lot of people that they end up shopping a whole lot more on Instagram because they're somehow targeted with all the right points of data. But I'm thinking that what Facebook is currently faced with is in the legality of what's the difference between selling your data or giving certain apps or certain companies access to their users' data. And legally, I think they're two very different things. And I'm wondering how you're synthesizing what's unfolding between this new public discussion that we're having on user access, data ownership, selling people's data without their awareness. So I think part of it comes down to the fact that organizations don't have a clear plan of what they're going to do with data. They're just going to gather it as much as they possibly can because someday, maybe in the future, they're going to come up with a, a new idea to do something with it. And for our regular listeners, this runs completely counter to something like the GDPR where you need to really specify why you're collecting this data, what you're going to use it for, how long you're going to store it. You need to provide that information back to the owner, so the individuals um, who's uh, who owns the data, who's, who the data is about, as opposed to in the U.S. where we don't have any of those regulations. And it's quite patchwork right now. Uh, California's coming out with something and there's a couple other places working on it. But that's the, the main kind of issue right now is there's no framework for this, at least here in the United States, to deal with this. And companies are just going to keep hoarding data just in case that they might need it someday. And they're always looking to increase their market share. So this is just a commodity to them. They can kind of buy and sell and trade because somebody else might have that new and novel idea on how to use it. And, uh, and we've seen in Facebook's case, they can also wield it as a cudgel, I guess, against their potential enemies. They realize that being able to use this data and monetize it is important and cutting off companies um, from getting access to that data could be, you know, potentially detrimental. So they use it as a way to kind of corner the market and reinforce monopoly, uh, their data monopoly in a way. The advent of just organizations creating whatever the vacuum is for them and just taking in as much data as they can and having the flexibility of deciding what to do with it. You know, you look at the article we read about Facebook, they contemplated charging even users for it, but they don't know how, what's the right way. I think the word was ubiquity they discussed. The way I see it, to be honest, at its most simplistic form is a targeted ad based on my internet behavior wrong? No, right? I think it's a little annoying. Sometimes it's creepy, but is it actually wrong? Does it does it impact my quality of life, my day-to-day? Does it put my life at risk? Not necessarily, right? But the problem is, the challenge that I have, there's no incentive to me freely giving these companies all this data, aside from them providing, whether it be a service or, or a product. There's really no incentive, right? So you're gonna get all this information about me, and then you're gonna cut a deal with some other company to sell that data to them, and we're all cut out, right? So if there was a, a more of an incentive, you know, hey, you know, if you opt into this, let's just make it monetary for now, right? Then I get something for you freely tracking my spending habits, etc., with the foreknowledge of you potentially selling it down the line, right? Or creating some sort of new technology with it. But I was incentivized up front and I was fully aware of what you were doing with it. I'll use a parallel. There is a huge rise in popularity of cashback, right? So whether it be a credit card or whether it be something like, what was the last one I saw? I think it was called Dosh. It's like a Dosh app or something where if you sign up and you refer a friend, we'll give you 10 bucks. You sign up, you refer two friends, we'll give you 10 bucks. 
Or I think Ebates was another good one where we'll go out and we'll find all the coupons or all the discounts relevant to what you want to buy. And we're going to help save you money, right? But in order to actually unlock all this stuff, we're going to need this information from you. And we're going to probably need a linked credit card or a linked debit card, right? Now with that link, you can actually start seeing everywhere that I'm spending my money. What's the incentive there? Well, I know I'm getting the best deal for whatever it is I'm about to buy. And then the more and more and more that I buy, I sort of forget about the fact that they're tracking me. And now with all that data, who knows? You know, they absolutely have a model to say, hey, we've got X amount of consumers or customers that use our app. And I understand you want to do X, Y and Z with it. This could be a, va a valuable prop for you. You know, let's talk. Now, at that point, we as a consumer aren't even involved in that conversation. But we up front bought in because we were OK with the incentive with the trade-off for them having the information about us. Do you feel that companies are upfront about what they're using with the data? You know, when they collect it for their quote-unquote free service, whatever it happens to be? What's the disclosure process? No, I, I follow you. I don't think they are as clear enough. I don't think they're explicit at all in terms of what exactly is going to be collected and how it's going to be used. Not at all. And again, I don't think people are asking the right questions in respect to that, quite frankly, until it's too late in some respect. Insert company here, got breached, 500 million records. We'll make up who that company might be. Yep. When you guys talk about how these companies are amassing data for their own benefits, even without a plan of what to do with it, my first concern is, well, you know, not every company out there has the same mindset in terms of how well they protect that information, how they store it, what their processes are. So while to them they see an asset in many ways, it's also a liability. It's something that they have the responsibility to care for, protect, and there's a, the potential in, in damaging a lot of people. Uh, lives if, if this information does get out, which again, we're seeing left and right these days. That's the, the main concern that I have is, is everybody sees this as like a, a gold rush for information. Uh, they don't really think about how it might affect other people besides them. Well, not just the data. Sometimes I also think it's the sales process of tricking users because I think it's it's hard to tell. So for instance, there's been some fitness apps that apparently end up stealing your money through Apple Touch ID where they ask you to provide a fingerprint to access your data or to move forward in advance, but instead it automatically charges your saved credit card. And because these apps, they have fake reviews, it's also hard to tell which apps are trustworthy or devious and it's sort of layer upon layer of problems that we see as we develop new technologies so it's another I keep coming back to, well, where's our boundary and how do you navigate your way in our technologically enhanced world? In many ways, the security system that we have now is an escalating arms race where every time the attacker changes their tactics, the defenders change to counter those. And, you know, then the attacker adapts to get around the countermeasures. In the case of the, you know, the touch ID and biometrics, it's a great, it's another step. Now, obviously, it's hard to say that 
that's one of those education issues. Like people don't necessarily connect um, security, you know, and charging the card with, you know, their fingerprint on the uh, Apple ID. They go, oh, you know, that makes sense. It's got to access my data, but they don't think about that. So part of that maybe is an education issue. And part of it might need to be, again, maybe the next evolution in our standard security. So, you know, the biometrics is a great addition, but maybe to authorize a credit card payment, it has to be biometrics and something else. I mean, that would reduce user adoption perhaps because it's an extra hurdle that they have to jump over. It um, it impedes their functionality. But I'm sure the people who got, you know, $100 stolen off of them from this bogus app um, would definitely appreciate that extra step. I was just at a conference. I went to the little shop at the hotel because uh, I wanted a, you know, a bottle of water. And I noticed when I went in there, you know, I went to pay with my credit card. And they said, oh, let me check your ID. And so I showed her my ID. And I said, oh, is this standard practice for you guys? And she says, yeah, the company policy at the hotel is every single person who pays with a credit card, they check with their ID to avoid instances of credit card fraud. It was an extra one second to just say, oh, here's my ID because I have my wallet out anyway. Um, but I said, you know, hey, I really appreciate that as a great company policy. I'm sure we've all had our cards stolen and used inappropriately. But just, again, that extra layer of security is, is just enough to avoid probably the majority of issues. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting scenario what we're talking about with the... Uh the thumbprint touch ID stuff and, and the abuse of that. It's another classic case of technology giving people a, a, a way to simplify processes and make things more convenient for them. And then somebody exploiting that particular need for convenience. Did you guys watch the video of how this is, attack is actually performed? So basically you, you're putting your thumb in, it says, you know, put your thumb into like, uh, what does it say? It says, don't remove your finger from the home button because uh, otherwise it's not going to work. And then it pops up the payment like uh, option as your thumb is already in place for it. And it's a really clever idea, but it's, I mean, it's obviously a real pain as well. Um, I think it's an interesting way to exploit how people are used to using their phones. People are building new technology around convenience. You know, uh, RFID chips in your your card can be you know really useful, but then somebody decides to build some way to skim that some other way or to uh, to pick up on that. Or you know, people stop looking for your your signature on your card. As we move more and more towards making things easier for people, someone else is going to find a way to exploit that. I think it's good that Apple is is refunding anybody who complains about this, but hopefully this is going to alert them to what the flaw is in their system and. And hopefully they'll be better about picking up on abusive apps like this that are or trying to abuse the technology that we have in place to, to steal money. Yeah, I remember when we first started talking about the benefits of biometrics and having another layer of security. And we're seeing that sort of unfold where new technology brings in new concerns where they've, they've finally figured out that there are fake fingerprints that can be replicated to look real where they can contain certain properties that are undetectable to the human eye and that would eventually end up causing some confusion to some fingerprint scanners and I'm wondering if you guys can talk about how this new development will change, enhance, or deter or encourage cyber criminals to bypass a lot of systems. Can you guys talk about the implications of this new discovery? It's scary. I'd say the, the concerns are there and they're definitely warranted. I was actually a big backer of biometrics in college. As a matter of fact, I did a project on using biometrics at the ATM, right? And, and my angle was to eliminate steps that potentially could make you vulnerable to a muggler, to a, to a burglar, right? Or someone who may want to rob you, right? Because why? They, they can kind of scope you out. You have to pull out your wallet. You didn't have to take out your card. You have to insert card into ATM. You have to then type in your PIN. So why can't all that be eliminated with just a thumbprint scan and get you right into your account and you go you go on your merry way and you kind of shrink the amount of time you're at 
the ATM. So in college, it seemed like such a great idea. Jump ahead almost 10 years and you can see how security almost to some extent is in, our, is in an arms race with the bad guys with this for the simple fact that that can still be exploited. So if someone is able to recreate a thumbprint, how's to say an ATM isn't foolproof against using a bogus thumbprint to get into someone's account? And the many ways which I could potentially get the, the thumbprint of a very wealthy individual. It's probably plenty of ways, right? Get him to grab a mug at, at, at a restaurant or grab something that he's had his hands on or, you know, there's many ways, you know, not, not, not to think of a thousand now. So, you know, I think while the technology definitely it's going to come, I just feel like the the attackers or those that want to try and exploit it are working just as hard. I've seen it even in my own phone. uh, I've realized how easy it is to potentially make a purchase using Touch ID. So to Chris's point, that was very slick of them in order to get the payment really quickly while your thumb's still on the phone for something completely different. It also comes down to a trade-off of um, security versus convenience in many ways. So they can increase, you know, the points on the thumb that they're going to match against and that'll increase potential security. You'll need to have a a more complete fingerprint, for example. But that also requires you to maybe have it on the sensor or in just the right place and orientation for it to pick it up. So that's also the trade-off here is I think a lot of times people or organizations or or developers err on the side of more convenience having the Touch ID. You know, that that thumbprint is maybe more secure than not, but it's not the most secure because uh, that would require that, again, the user holds it in just the right position and gets it in just the right uh, area of of their finger whatever they're using, um, to read it correctly. And, you know, if not, it could cause some frustration with the users and maybe drive down adoption. And then I'm actually not surprised in terms of using AI to create the, the thumbprints. And again, I don't know exactly how all of the different vendors implement it, but you figure, again, there is some error rate with the sensors and being able to kind of exploit that, saying, hey, you know, if we match 40% of the points on the, the finger, that's good enough in, in the lower security mode that most users run it in. So it's not entirely surprising that, again, that they're doing this. Even think if you get a really high-res photo of somebody's hand anymore. The sensors are pretty darn good. You can use AI to kind of extrapolate that and try and fill in the differences from maybe multiple photos and get that information. So I see it as, you know, an issue that's increasing. And I think that we're always going to have that that back and forth between the the two interests of making things secure and making things usable or easy. I mean, this goes all the way back to just even people having good password policies, you know. Is it going to be safer to have a really complex password? Well, of course. But is the average user going to remember, you know, 16 characters? that are completely random or are they going to remember one, two, three, four, five and pop that in there? I think it's kind of a battle between, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a human nature kind of thing. People don't want to have too many impediments to what they're trying to accomplish, but not always considering the outcomes of making things too easy or making things too insecure. I don't know if there's a solution to this. This is something we've been seeing for decades ever since, I mean, even, even before that. People want to have things that are easy and quick and, and help them to get on their way, but they often just don't consider the ramifications of, of making things too easy or making things easily exploitable. So I imagine regardless of whether we keep developing new technologies for authentication and things like that, there's always going to be people who are either lazy about it or just don't have the same thought process that people who work in security do. And we're going to always have to find ways to, to cater to that, unfortunately. Agreed. If, if a fingerprint scan has to have more of the actual fingerprint in order to authenticate the scan, let's just say, for example, the person doesn't get the complete scan, it errors out. What's the backup to then verify that the person is who they are? are? And, and how are companies thinking about taking convenience, but then reverting back to the reason why they replaced it with convenience in the first place? The example being, oh, your finger
fingerprint was wrong three amount of times. Now insert password. That's uh, that's an excellent question. I think if I had the answer for that, uh, you know, I'd be uh, pretty rich, right? <laughs> You know, for certain applications, I don't mean applications and programs, but certain um, security applications, they might not allow that fallback for that exact reason. So, you know, in high security places, they might say it's the fingerprint or nothing. And if you get locked out, you're going to have to wait or have some other type of um, multi-step verification, which again, cuts way down the convenience factor. But again, the security trade-off is much higher. Or, you know, for example, if you get locked out of your, um, you know, bank account or something like that, they might make you go into the branch and verify your identity because they're not going to simply, you know, let you in or hopefully not let you in. But again, that cuts down the convenience factor. In most, I would say, low-tech applications, they would um, revert back to some other type of authentication method. So, you know, PIN, something like that. I'm not sure how it works on Apple. You know, maybe a face ID can't verify you, then you can go back to fingerprint or PIN or something like that, or a combination of the two. And, you know, maybe that's the answer. Some other secondary method, so you have a PIN and something. Um, but it, again, making that easy is is the challenge. Um, you can layer on 50 different things there, but if at the end of the day, it just falls back to, you know, some simple verification verification, what's the point? Kind of like putting a screen door on a submarine. Yeah, I, I had a, um, and I won't go too long on this, but I had a really bad experience with uh, Android. I, I had got the Note 4 at the time and I started using the fingerprint scanner and it was great. And this was probably over the course of a few months. I had been taking pictures from the office at 1250 and I wanted to do a time lapse of what's now a humongous skyscraper, but this was when it was rooted in the ground. So I was taking pictures routinely and I had a nice buildup and then it just happened, just so happens one day. I was sort of in a rush, but I needed to unlock my phone. So I kept doing the thumb swipe, thumb swipe, thumb swipe. It, it was wrong. Not wrong, but I, you know, to your point, it wasn't scanning enough, right? So it was just failing. So then after the, I guess, whatever the threshold is, which I didn't even know there was any control over or if there was even a threshold at all, it says, okay, you can no longer use your fingerprint. Insert backup password. What's the backup password? I have no idea. And if, if I didn't know what it was, guess where I probably saved it? In my phone, which I can't get into. So I go to AT&T. They said, sorry, we can't help you. You have to now restore to factory default, losing all photos because they weren't syncing to the cloud. That is terrible. That's that's one of my persistent fears with technology. You know, you think about how often you use your phone for, you know, let's just say you're using like um, the Google Authenticator app or you know, some third-party app like that. If you get locked out of your phone, you have to restore your phone. You can't get access to your token on your phone to unlock other services, then what? Uh, so I am super paranoid about, uh, about that type of thing. But again... That's the security versus availability trade-off, I guess. No, but I, but I agree that's terrible. <laughs> You're worried about one thing. Australia's giving a bunch of other companies something else to worry about because they just passed a bill that forced tech companies to hand over encrypted data and companies who build in security and privacy by design so that when governments want a backdoor to the data, they may or may not have trouble complying. At least for me, this is all of my tech nightmares come true, basically. It's a systematic undermining of the fundamentals of security. I think one of the, the articles that we read said it, I forget if it was maybe somebody from Apple that, that kind of made this point, but encryption is simple math. And, you know, if you weaken up that math, it weakens the entire process for everybody. So the entire underpinning of security here is, is just going right down the tubes, I think, um, with this. There's no way to, to implement this where just the good guys have it. I'm doing air quotes very sarcastically. If you introduce that weakness 
listening to the algorithm. It's there to find. You can't rely on it being obscure to protect it. As we've seen, someone's going to find it eventually. Look at even something like uh, some of the processor flaws that we've seen in the last you know couple months. They've been there for you know decades, but eventually somebody's going to find them. And when they do, all the data that's protected by you know the encryption, whatever it happens to be, is you might as well just not. You might as well just not bother encrypting at that point. So I, I don't think there's a way to do this and still um, maintain the trust and the security of people's data. I think this is just going to kind of really set security back. I see from a non-technical perspective, from a like a law enforcement perspective, what the motivation is for, for trying to get a government to have that kind of access to those sorts of devices. I'm sure that anybody could think of one or two situations in which that would be, I don't know if the word permissible is correct or not, but line up with their motivations. That said, if you create a backdoor like this, then someone else could discover it and someone else could abuse it. You keep hearing stories about police who have you know, a suspect in custody and they want to open up their phone and they want to see what's in it for the, for the sake of, of protecting people and for the sake of making sure something like that event doesn't occur again. But at the same time, this is something that's easily abused. There's a tiny part of me that gets it and there's a lot, much larger part of me that's immediately scared and, and uh, made nervous by this. Surprised Australia was the first to actually streamline this. I see that it was passed in the lower levels and now it's going to be fed up to the higher Senate, but the higher Senate's basically saying we're going to pass it. Obviously something that the United States has wanted to do, you know, even with the advent of 9-11, it was we need to do this. And I think there was a consensus that from a security perspective, talk about the utmost invasion of privacy. There needs to be a stringent process. There needs to be really hard regulation around what stipulates a suspect, what type of crime then stipulates the use of this type of surveillance and who are the stewards or custodians or those held accountable with the usage of this this type of tech you know how are we overseeing this because i think encryption is in some respect the last security we have left there's no more encryption and you know there's no privacy what is privacy let's just put it all out there let's just stop talking about it and let's deal with it as it you know as it comes it's definitely going to be a uh, interesting topic to follow, especially how Australia decides to roll this out. And they're, they're going to then become the case study for, obviously, the many other go- governments that want to do it also. Thanks to Chris Kaiser, Killian Englert, Sean Campbell, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we had today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.